everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Lauren Jones from the National Center for Access to Justice. Welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me. So tell us a little bit about the National Center for Access to Justice. Okay, so I think for anybody who has had contact with the legal system, whether that's in criminal court or family court, immigration, housing, civil court through debt collection, um, I think that people who have experienced that know that there is a lot of dysfunction and that there's a lot of inequity often that happens, particularly if you are somebody who is poor or working class, or if you are a person of color. Um, I think people have experienced that firsthand if they've touched the system. But for people who haven't had that experience firsthand, I think the problems that happen in the criminal and civil legal systems are often obscured, and sometimes purposely so, um, that a lot of that is, it, it ha- really does not come to light. And so we engage in research and analysis uh, of the laws, policies, practices across the United States in the courts. And so we look at not only the outcomes for people in criminal court and civil courts and whether there are just outcomes and whether there is fairness in what happens, but also in the system and looking at some of the procedural justice issues. So things like If you are not an English speaker, if that's not your primary language, do you have access to an interpreter in the courtroom? And beyond that, do you have access to documents and to forms that are in your primary language? If you're somebody who has a disability, can you actually physically access the courtroom Um, in housing court? Does the state provide a right to counsel in in you know, housing cases, or is it that people who are tenants who are facing eviction are there alone up against what is often a represented um, landlord? Is there, are there enough legal aid attorneys in your area? Because there are huge parts of this country where there's just not enough legal aid attorneys to go around. And we're looking now at fines and fees because for so many people who have even a minor brush with the criminal legal system, it means that there are fines that go with it as uh, as a punishment, but then there are also fees that get tacked on, which can sometimes be exorbitant in the thousands of dollars. And 
there's no punishment purpose to it. There's no deterrent purpose to these fees. They're simply to fund the court systems, law enforcement, and really mass incarceration. And so we are looking at these policies and laws and practices across the country, trying to draw attention to them, which I I know you all do um, in just an incredible way on your podcast. Um, And then making recommendations about reforms, about how we can increase access to justice for everybody who touches these systems. So I'm going to drill down into fines and fees in a minute, which is actually one of my favorite issues. Um, But I'm just curious um, how you got into uh, this area in the first place. How I did personally? Yeah. So I started out on the criminal legal reform side. Um, I, back in law school, was um, did a, a semester down in Alabama. I was fortunate enough to get to work with Brian Stevenson and I was representing being. somebody on death row. <laughs> it was absolutely incredible. And it's a, it was a life-changing experience. And I think once you see that and once you touch that system, you can't turn away. Um, and so... I worked for a number of years at the Vera Institute and was working on, particularly in New York, looking at all different aspects of the criminal legal system and um, whether that was bail reform, parole reform, and everything in between. Um, And now, you know, I've been thinking about some of the issues that are upstream, some of the things that are feeding people into the criminal legal system, um, whether that is family court and somebody is in foster care, that makes it much more likely that they're going to be incarcerated later on in life. Whether that's housing court and people are evicted and then they are arrested for status crimes. And so um, I've been really excited at the National Center for Access to Justice to get to work on the intersection of the civil and criminal systems and to think about how we can focus on people not as, as a single case, um, but to think about the person as a whole and the different crises that they're facing um, and looking at sort of whole system reform to try to address that. So talk a little bit about the Justice Index. Sure. So the Justice Index was created in 2014 for the first time, and it was modeled on the Democracy Index, which was looking at the extent to which um, places actually had policies in place to support democracy. And so we took that idea and started to look at access to justice issues. So those issues that I was talking about before, about the right to counsel in civil court, about the number of legal aid attorneys that there are, about you know language access, all of these different pieces. And we, on each of these different issue areas, we brought together a group of experts from around the country and said, well, what are the policies that states should have in place to protect the rights of people who touch this system? And then we created a scoring system, which sort of, which, you know, weights things according to how important we think it is in terms of protecting people's rights. Then we, through uh, a lot of pro bono work from law firms, we're very fortunate to have uh, partners doing this work, do research across all 50 states and Washington, D.C., um, to look at whether they actually have these policies in place or how close they come to having the policies that we set as benchmarks, then we score them and we rank the states. And the goal with this is, number one, to have a public education tool to try to make some of these things that are pretty obscure more evident to people. 
Um, but number two is to hopefully create a little bit of competition among the states that they want to do better. And we have seen that it actually works. Um, Oklahoma, for example, was ranked almost last on the justice index and as a result created an access to justice commission and have changed a lot of their policies and practices because of it, because they didn't want the, the stain of being last or close to last. Um, and so that's, that was the idea behind creating the justice index. Very interesting. Although you you uh, you reminded me of my dark days doing comps when you mentioned the democracy index. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> um, so um, I, I want to talk a little bit about fines and fees, and maybe we can uh, discuss it within the context of the justice index. Um, so yeah. I'm out in California, and I don't know if you're familiar enough to have this discussion about California, or if it's better for you for us to have the discussion about New York. But I, I noticed that um, you know the overall conclusion under fines and fees was no state did well on the scoring system. Only two states received even 50 points. California received 41 out of 100 points. Can you? Uh, and that was that was good, um, quote unquote, right? Um, right. Uh, Seventh in the country. They ranked sixth in the nation, um, but not a good score. So, so what's going on here? So, I think you you sort of hit the nail head. Like the unfortunately, the the state. Uh, of fines and fees policies across the country is pretty abysmal. That when we look at the ideal policies that we set, which to be honest, I don't think are very high benchmarks, but we looked at things like whether a state has abolished these fees that are just funding the court system, whether they have you know, made sure that the money doesn't actually go directly into the court system or into law enforcement to try to take away some of these um, perverse incentives, whether they have... Um, you know, ended some of the, the sort of collateral consequences to this. So whether people can vote if they have outstanding fines and fees, whether states suspend a driver's license, for example. And so what we've seen is that no state even approaches the, the benchmarks that we have set with these experts, um, that Washington state ranked the highest in the nation, but it doesn't even get a passing score. And in California, I will say California has made huge amounts of progress in the last few years on fines and fees policies. Um, I was talking not long ago to somebody who now works on fines and fees reform who started out as a judge in California. And she was talking to me about how her first day on the bench, she was in a sentencing hearing and she got to the part about a fee for appointed counsel. And she looked at it and she said, I never heard of this. What do you mean? You know, if you have a public defender, it should be free. And I think that's the assumption that most people make is that a public defender is free. And so she took a recess from the bench and she went back to talk to another judge. And the other judge said, well, it's mandatory. You have to, you know, you have to impose this fee and it doesn't matter any way because nobody pays it. And what the judge, I think what the other judge didn't realize is that this then becomes a debt that follows people for years or even decades, and it ruins people's credit. It means that they can't rent a home, they can't buy a car. It can turn into uh, incarceration later on if people don't appear for their court appearance. Um, and so, 
you know, that was that was the state of play in California not long ago. In 2020, the state actually ended the fee for appointed counsel, which is great. It ended 23 fees in total um, without legislation. But there is a long way to go. Um, there until just July of this year, California also had a $300 assessment that people would owe if they didn't show up for a court appearance or if they didn't pay their fines and fees on time. And so that, you know, when we think about the state of play where we know that most Americans can't afford a $450 emergency, um, then most people can't afford this $300 assessment either. And again, it meant that people got trapped in this system where they, you know, had civil judgments against them, where it could lead to all these other consequences that are years long or sometimes even lifelong for people. And so California just amended that and dropped it down to $100. So it's a significant improvement, but they didn't do away with this assessment. And so that's still on the books. Um, There are a number of other pieces, I think, where there's need for improvement. Um, First of all, California could become the first state in the nation to abolish all fees. Um, It could also end this these perverse incentives that courts have now where a lot of the money from fees go directly into their budgets. And so there is this incentive to, you know, whether or not it's, it's a conscious thing, there is an incentive when you know that the money is funding your budget to increase the funds and fees. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack here. Um, we've, <laughs> we've discussed this issue a number of times. We've had the director of the Fines and Fees Justice Center on here. Uh, We had uh, Tony Messenger, who's a reporter out of St. Louis. um, Yeah, fabulous reporting. Yeah. Um, So a lot of really interesting stuff. Um, I I guess I'll share my my little uh, story. I got, you know, a uh, speeding ticket like a lot Mm -hmm. of people get. and uh you know it was during the pandemic and frankly i forgot about it uh Mm -hmm. and so all of a sudden i i got this notice hey you got a failure to appear here's a 300 dollar uh civil assessment um i had to uh go to court fortunately it was uh on zoom so i was just in my office uh waiting to come on explain the situation to the judge. The judge was kind enough to waive the fee. And, uh, you know, I paid my ticket and was on with life. But, you know, for a lot of people, you know, they can't afford to pay the ticket and they don't have a judge that was, uh, the judge was basically waiving everybody's fee uh, as long as they showed up. Um, And so, but that doesn't always happen either. Um, And so, you know, um, I know there was a Pulitzer Prize winning story. I think it was in ProPublica or one of those publications out of Chicago, which talked about what happened uh, when people got speeding fees, parking fees, those kind of fees, and then they can't pay it and, and they go on um, these you know, installment plans and often they'll start missing payments and uh, you know, it starts adding up, they lose their licenses, uh, they lose their cars, they lose their means to get to work. Um, you know, I know California at some point, maybe 2018, I want to say, uh, uh, detached uh, losing uh, your driving privileges 
for having outstanding fees, but a lot of states haven't done that. Right. Right. And it's, you know, I just saw a study the other day. It was from, it was from Florida and they were looking at, um, no, excuse me, it was from Georgia and they were looking at seven counties in Georgia and there the, the plurality of people, the most common charge that people were in jail on was traffic violations. And the most common of those traffic violations was driving with a suspended license. And that's because people, you know, who have fines and fees who can't pay them often get their license suspended. And so it means that people are spending a good amount of time in jail, whether that's directly because they, you know, fail to appear for their court date. You know, if, if somebody doesn't have the money to pay and they're, they're afraid that they're going to get arrested if they go to court or they're afraid of what the consequences are going to be, then sometimes they don't appear. Or it could be that somebody forgets like you did, or it could be that somebody doesn't have transportation because if you've had your license suspended, um, then it's really hard to get to court in most places in this country. And so then somebody doesn't appear, you know, appear in court and suddenly now they are arrested and they're spending time in jail. And so, you know, we see these, these cases all across the country and uh, it's, it means that the amount of money that you have in your wallet really determines your outcome. Definitely. So in terms of this index, then what, what are the biggest factors that are driving down pretty much everyone's score? I mean, first of all, it's that nobody has abolished these yet. Um, no state has. San Francisco uh, became the first city in the country to abolish all of their local fees, but no state has yet abolished all of their criminal fees. Um, and then there's, you know, I, I, I think it's a, it's sort of a mix of things. A lot of it is about ability to pay because in many places, most places in the country, I should say, there's no consideration of a person's ability to pay when judges set fines and fees. Very few places actually have a standard where they will say, well, if you're below, you know, X percent of the poverty level, then you shouldn't have to pay any fines and fees. Um, there, you know, there often isn't that sort of hearing on ability to pay at the outset. And then there often isn't that ability to pay hearing, even though under the Constitution and Supreme Court holdings, there is supposed to be that hearing before somebody's incarcerated. A lot of states are still failing to do that too. Um, a lot of places, you know, I think Florida gets the most attention for it that they don't let people vote if they have outstanding fines and fees. But that's true in a lot of places across the country. Um, so there's there's a lot of different issues that are going into this that um, that are driving down scores. Um, you know, I think some of this is, it, it really goes back to the 80s and 90s, because at the height of the tough on crime period, when we saw this huge surge in mass incarceration, we also saw that fines and fees started to skyrocket. And there was this drive for funding for mass incarceration that um, a number of places like Alabama, for example, there are very few ways for local jurisdictions to raise taxes other than to increase fines and fees. And so what it means is that you have just this, this huge surge in fines and fees and 
this regressive tax that is really putting all of this on the backs primarily of poor people and also people of color because it follows the same patterns that we see in, um, you know, in, in traffic stops that if you are uh, black or Latinx, you're more likely to get pulled over and then you're more likely to get a ticket. You know, it's, it's the same pattern that we see in policing and arrests. All of that follows through into what we see in fines and fees too. And this is exactly what uh, Tony Messenger found when he looked at Missouri, um, that you can't raise money through taxes. Uh, so you have to right. impose these fees and these fees are literally paying for these courts. And so these courts and these sheriff's departments, you know, they don't wanna get rid of the fines and fees because that's their money. They can't get money right. any other way. Right, right, that's exactly right. And, you know, I think the Ferguson report after Mike Brown's um, murder, the Ferguson report really highlighted that and I think drew attention to this issue in a way that we hadn't seen nationally before. But it's not just about Ferguson. The same the same problems that we saw going on there where, you know, there's pressure from judges, there's pressure from law enforcement to increase fines and fees because, you know, and from the city council because it's a way to raise revenue. Um, that happens all across the country. So we've talked. I will a lot say. About... I. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say that it's a really inefficient way to raise revenue. I think that there is this notion that it's that it is a way to bring in money, but you know, studies have found that places spend so much trying to collect fines and fees that in some places they actually spend more trying to collect fines and fees than they get back. Um, and it, it's just a really inefficient way to try to raise money because it is, you know, it's like trying to get blood from a turnip when people don't have the money, there's no way to actually get that money. Um, and so it's not, there is a notion, I think that it's going to be this big revenue raiser, but in reality, it doesn't bring in much money because the people who are facing these fines and fees for the most part don't have the money to pay. Yeah, and that seems like another area of research that might be helpful to this debate. Yeah, for sure. The Brennan Center has been doing some really interesting research on that. A number of years ago, they they were looking at um, the collections and what they found, and particularly in places where they incarcerate people for failure to pay, some of the locations were spending, you know, 115% of what they were bringing in to try to collect on fines and fees because you know, it's expensive to incarcerate people. And so they're holding people for failure to pay when people really had no ability to do so. Um, so let's talk about some of the other areas that you guys are looking at. Um, I know you mentioned, uh, you know, legal aid, which seems like nowhere has sufficient legal aid. Uh, can you talk about That's that true. a little bit? Yeah, that is, that is, certainly um, true and and very unfortunate. There are huge parts of this country where there are just legal aid deserts, where you have to travel, travel miles and miles to even reach a legal aid attorney, and where they're just, you know, I, I think in most places in this country, you think about the number of um, the number of attorneys for the population in general, and on average, it's about 40 attorneys for um, 10,000 people, I believe. Um, but when you look at the number of legal aid attorneys per 10,000 people who live below 200% of the poverty level, 
most places don't even have two. Um, and so there's just not enough attorneys for people who are facing, you know, things like debt collection claims or um, other civil lawsuits. Uh, and it, it's it's a real issue for people. And it means that people go into housing court facing uh, an attorney and a, a huge power imbalance on the other side. You know, in debt collection cases, almost nobody is represented who owes uh, who owes private debt, whether that's medical debt or credit card debt or student loan debt. Um, and so we just see that it creates these huge power imbalances where the party that is trying to collect or the party that has more power is almost always represented. And there are very few protections in place for people who don't have counsel. Yeah, and, and that has played a role in um you know, the eviction uh, freeze and the fact uh, that, you know, there's probably going to be a crisis at some point with evictions as well, because it's yeah. impossible to get legal representation when you've been evicted. Yeah. Here in New York City, we actually have a right to counsel in housing court. It's a recent phenomenon, but because there's so many evictions, a lot of people still don't have that counsel because there just aren't enough lawyers to take those cases. And so there's there's a whole debate going on in the city council about what to do and do we stop evictions and how do we manage that? Because even with the right to counsel, cases are still going forward and people just have no access to an attorney. Um, and so we're, we're thinking about also um, the laws about unauthorized practice of law. And is there a role for non-lawyers in some instances, in some limited instances where people could, you know, talk to a librarian or a social worker or a reverend who could at least in in some cases like help them fill out a form for example in a bankruptcy case you know who could help them to to do that but right now that's considered unauthorized practice of law and so there's a there's a case that we filed an amicus brief in here in New York um, it's an organization called Upsolve where they've been trying to create software that would help people, but they also have a reverend who said, you know, he had a hundred signatures from people saying, we want him to be able to help us with this. We don't understand these forms. We want somebody who is a little, you know, even has some more knowledge to be able to help us because there just aren't the legal aid attorneys to be able to do it. And I know in California, uh, they fought for the right for paralegals to be able to do more as well. Right. Yep. Yeah, it's a, it's a conversation that's happening across the country about who can help uh, because we just don't have the lawyers to go around. So what other issues are you guys looking at? So the next thing that we're going to add to the justice index, um, we added fines and fees in 2021. We just updated it in 2022. And next year, we're going to add another category, which is debt claims. And so it's it is these cases where people have debt collection from, you know, whether that's medical debt or whether it is credit card debt or student loan debt. Um, huge numbers of Americans have this debt. And in the overwhelming majority of cases, people default. They just don't go to court. Um, they don't have any representation. And then it means that their, their wages are garnished, their bank accounts are levied. Um, in some cases, they're incarcerated. Um, for failure to pay or failure to appear, 
across the country. And they, it is, again, this, this power imbalance that we're seeing in other courts, we certainly see in debt collection cases. And those are the majority of cases in, in uh, civil courts now. And so that's the next thing that we're doing is looking at what policies and practices states should put in place to protect people who are facing a debt claim. That is a, I, I mean, that kind of goes back into the fines and fees, right? I mean, people get their lives ruined over small amounts of money that just start accruing. Yep. It's, it's very similar. You know, some, one is issued by the courts and the other one is issued by private, um, you know, by private, either that's hospitals or credit card companies or whoever it's private organizations. Um, but it, the impact on people's lives is very, very, very similar. Now, I know you mentioned that Oklahoma um, had kind of uh, done some reforms in response to some of your ratings. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, I follow especially things like the death penalty in Oklahoma um, because there's so many death penalty cases pending right now. But, um, yep. uh, you know, and, and it seems like Oklahoma's made at least uh, some headway on some issues, at least. Um, yeah. But in terms of overall, I mean, what kind of impact have you seen as the result of doing these indexes? Yeah, I mean, yeah, Oklahoma is, is really interesting because it has one of the highest incarceration rates in the entire country. And yet on the fines and fees justice index, it does fairly well. Um, but, you know, having conversations with the people who practice in Oklahoma, what we know is that even when there are some good laws on the books, in practice, it's not actually happening. Um, and so there's a bit of a disconnect, I think, with with what we see when we just do the legal research versus what is actually happening and, and the impact that it has on people. Um, I will say that there's, there's another state that we were really excited about this year, which is Delaware. Um, Delaware ranked 47th in the nation on the fines and fees justice index. Um, it had it had adopted almost none of the policies that we were looking for. Um, and when we released the justice index in 2021, the ACLU in Delaware right away put out a press release about how it was 47th in the nation, the campaign to end debtors prison there, um, which, has, which is this amazing group of volunteers who have just been so dedicated to changing the law, have been using that as a talking point um, and then the legislator who introduced this bill, HB 244, it's an omnibus bill to change fines and fees policies there, also cited the justice index. Um, and so that was signed uh, this October. And so it moved Delaware from 47th to uh, 23rd on the justice index. So it eliminates juvenile court fines and fees, which is, which is really great. That's something that we're seeing momentum building across the country, that we shouldn't be charging children or their parents um, huge fines and fees when they get into trouble with the law, because either that means that it's destabilizing families, or that once children turn 18, then they have this debt, this crushing debt that follows them because of the mistake that they made as a kid. Um, so Delaware eliminated juvenile court fines and fees. They eliminated the practice of suspending licenses for failure to pay fines and fees. Um, and so they made huge progress uh, on on their practices on fines and fees. And they're not stopping there. I know from talking to folks there that they have a lot more that they've teed up to do. But it was 
really significant progress that they made. And we're, we're proud that the Justice Index played even a small part of that. I'm kind of wondering based on that, um, do you guys have your own lobbying wing or you rely on other organizations to then take your data and say, hey, look, we got a problem here. Right. We don't lobby. Um, we're a 501c3, um, so we don't lobby, but we do try to work with the local organizations who are the ones on the ground who are really doing this incredible work. And and our goal is to provide the research, the analysis, and then the ammunition that they need that's helpful to them. Um, so, you know, for example, in New York, there was a bill that was pending this year, which unfortunately has not passed yet, which would have ended all criminal court fees. And so we did a report on that saying, well, if New York were to pass this, it would become first in the nation. It become become this national model. And we did that in conversation with the advocates there um, who said this would be helpful as as part of what we can talk about when we're talking to legislators. And so that's our goal across the country is to really support the, the work that people are doing on the front lines. If people want to learn more about what you guys are doing, how can they go about doing that? Ah, well, that's fabulous. Um, So ncaj.org is our website. So we have all of the Justice Index that is on there and that is accessible on there. The Fines and Fees Justice Index, we just, this, um, this past week, we just added 50 state reports. And so if people want to see what's going on in their states, um, then they can download a report and it hopefully explains and has citations to all the laws. And we hope that people will use that as, as some educational tools, but also a diagnostic tool. If you want to think about how to start improving things, hopefully it's a place to start. And, uh, you know, I hope people will reach out because that's, that is really our goal is to support the work that people are doing across the country. And so we want to work in, in coalition with the people who are doing this. Well, thank you so much for coming on and uh, sharing the amazing work that you guys are doing. Well, thank you for having me. It's been really a pleasure to have this conversation. Lauren Jones from National Center for Access to Justice. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.